When the Earth speaks, it does not do so in words exactly. This is a thing you know already, but that Nassen only learns in this moment. She cesses the meanings, hears the vibrations with the bones of her ears, shudders them out through her skin, feels them pull tears from her eyes. It is like drowning in energy and sensation and emotion. It hurts. Remember, the Earth wants to kill her. But remember, too, Nassen wants it just as dead. So it says, in microshakes that will eventually stir a tsunami somewhere in the southern hemisphere. Hello, little enemy. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. This is your favorite books podcast. If you happen to be a friend of either me or Bill, or, you know, of really intelligent discussions of Game of Thrones and Marvel, and then sometimes we just tack on books because we don't know what else to do, which is sort of how I'm getting into today's podcast, because this is our third podcast on N.K. Jemison's trilogy. Um, this is the third book in the trilogy, of the, you know, uh, the Broken Earth trilogy, sorry. Uh, the Stone Sky. It's a uh, it's a good time for endings though, because recently, as the recording of this podcast, um, the you know Phase One plan or whatever it's called of the Avengers has ended with, um, oh my gosh, the biggest movie of, in game, <laughs> the biggest movie of all time, and Game of Thrones. Not quite yet. Oh well, it's not, and, it's not quite the biggest movie of all time. Well, yet. and actually, it, it and, might still get there. We're not sure. And inflation-wise, I is that what you're talking about? Inflation-wise, I think inflation-wise, it actually has almost no chance of catching Gone with the Wind. If you account, well, nothing for, ever does. Yeah, yeah nothing ever does. Yeah. Uh, but it, I don't think it's quite beaten Avatar yet in gross. Yeah, no, I think I think yet. yeah, I think you're right. Although since we're already off in the weeds, you know what's interesting is how little of a cultural impact Avatar has left. You know what I mean? Like it, it has like no relevance to today's, you know, I think like pop culture, even just jokes. Whereas I can't imagine Marvel not lasting for at least, you know, a, a while longer. No, I mean, it's it, the highest grossing film of all time is a movie that I never think about ever under ever. any circumstances, except when I'm thinking about high grossing films. And then I'm like, oh, right. It was Avatar. <laughs> yeah, literally, except as a trivia note, I never see something and go, that reminds me of Avatar. It just almost never happens. Um, the best thing is there are still four sequels coming, uh, theoretically, <laughs> to Avatar. There are going to be five of them. Well, I, I mean, there was demand in 2009. You know, there was demand once upon a time. <laughs> I mean, there was $2.8 billion dollars worth of demand. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I can't say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't blame him for trying, I guess. I'm sure it'll make more money, but Wow. Um, okay. So, we're, um, so yeah, so actually I did want to, it's not a bad place to start though, because, um, last podcast we kind of talked about, you know, the role of second books and the role of sort of the bridge unit of any kind of trilogy or any kind of series. And so this is the ending of the trilogy before we get to it. I actually was just curious about, um, 
you know, because of so many things ending, including Game of Thrones, which I definitely am trying not to bait you on talking about too much, <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but I'm almost there. But I, I think it's, you know, I think it's worth asking, if nothing else, for the fun of it, like, um, what are some of the favorite endings to things that you have that you've read or watched or whatever? And, um, and then, yeah, Bill, how was the end of Game of Thrones? <laughs> <laughs> so I have a hard time. Anytime anybody asks me a question, asks me a question like this, you know, what are your favorite endings? What are your favorite things? My mind goes blank. And it's yeah, like I've, I've never, never read a book. I've in my never life. read anything. What's an ending? <laughs> You know, it's like if somebody said, "What's your, who's your, you know, who's your favorite American writer?" I would forget the nationality of every writer I've ever read. Right. So I have a hard time with a question like this, but I'm going to cheat and say uh, the best ending of anything of all time is the final boss in the video game FTL: Faster Than Light. Um, oh, that's actually the best ending of all time because it's a test on every single thing you've learned throughout the game so far. Uh, that's obviously not a helpful answer to the question you were asking because it's not for narrative reasons. Uh, I think Firefly <laughs> ended well, actually, for all that it ended early. I think that it, uh, I, I think that the way they did have to wrap it up at the end is actually about right for both the show and I think for how things should end. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think we, we talked about it recently. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Serenity, but I think we both agree Objects in Space is like one of the great episodes of television. Yeah, I, I would agree. I'm going to, I mean, I've been thinking about fantasy lately so i will actually say i mean i do think the lord of the rings ends very very well for you all know, that it's complicated and people hate it i think they're it was, wrong and it, it was, ends very well <laughs> it's so funny as you were saying this because i was trying to think of like what i was going to talk about like uh, and i had a few preloaded answers but as you were talking i realized that yeah especially because the movie sometimes i think you know, overshadows people's memory of the book that you have these four endings in the movie that i'm not sure it works quite as well in film um but I remember the first time I finished Lord of the Rings, like in sixth grade or whenever it was, you know, and I was so it was such a astounding ending because there is a lot of like, obviously, like the good guys win and basically all of the main good guys sort of have happy endings in a sense. But of course, you have that terrible coda of going back to the Shire, right? And it's been corrupted, even if it's kind of able to regain some of itself in the years to come so and also the best part is like my brother and i always talk about the first time that you dig into the appendices <laughs> and you're like yeah. oh my gosh gimli and legolas like had this whole friendship adventure that you don't know about unless you read the appendix the right appendix <laughs> um and so yeah i, I agree with people make fun of it but i i i think weirdly as you were talking i realized that one of my favorite endings is still lord of the rings one of my least favorite endings which i wasn't going to talk about but i it just came to my head because i've told you this before i really don't like the ending to dune um the first book i've never liked it i don't i think it's yeah i think it's a bad ending that sets up a sequel which i've never been able to finish um which you know i mean i guess yeah that's me admitting to possibly a bad opinion i haven't read dune since i was in high school but i think i would probably agree it does just kind of stop with sort of a too neat tied up I do kind of like his point about how he can't predict the one guy and he's not a terribly important figure throughout the I can't remember the character's name and I'm sorry but he's like a minor nobleman he's not a nobleman but he's, he's like a general or something who's important and Paul says I've predicted what everyone's going to do except I can't predict what this guy's going to do oh yeah uh, and I, I've always kind of liked that as there are other figures who are important that just weren't important to this particular story but right no I would kind of agree generally I don't recall liking the ending of Dune very much my um, most my most random pick for favorite endings in a, in a in a basically a chat that we're in together you asked about like season finales people liked and one of the most random ones I have is um Stargate Universe which is a show that like 
wasn't great, especially for the first season, and uh, which was even uneven in the second season. But for my money, has one of the best like endings for a sci-fi TV show that I've ever seen. As far as like the characters are responding to like a long-term problem, and they all have to make a difficult, like noble but sacrificial choice that you aren't sure how it's gonna be as the episode ends, but you know that it's worth them doing, which I think is like the perfect ending when like when you can when you can like expand the horizon of what the show has been while also kind of tying off what you've set up beforehand. I think that's sort of what you always want, right? You want the horizon to expand even as you're kind of settling the other um, threads you've put in motion or the you know things you put in motion. So that's that's a random one that I'd put out there actually. Uh, I got to mention The Haunting of Hill House. We've already talked about that Oof. on this podcast, yeah. but The Haunting of Hill House ends perfectly. I think that's one. And I just had another one, and if I can't call it to mind in a minute, I'll move on. But I really did have one. I'm very so- proud of myself. And then I was listening to what you said. And I'm going to edit this out later, <laughs> but I'm going to keep talking in the hopes that it comes back to me. Please don't edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I so if I, if I can bait you into a conversation that we definitely might cut... <laughs> um, I think it's been interesting actually reading this book. It's just a random coincidence, but reading this book as Game of Thrones ended and like we've talked about how this trilogy, Jimison's trilogy, has sort of been part of this huge internet culture war that I wasn't aware of. And I thought of that because I've slowly, I feel like, pulled out of a lot of my you know, my internet roots have become kind of, you know, (laughs) poisonous to me, (laughs) I feel like, in the sense that I think all the classic cliches of social media are basically true. There's a way in which self-consciousness feeds on itself until you're just not thinking your own thoughts. It's how it feels sometimes to me if I'm I'm on Twitter too long. All of which is to say, Game of Thrones was really interesting because I was, like, aware enough of all the takes to kind of, like, have an opinion. But I feel like I was actually removed enough that, like, Whatever I didn't enjoy, I was just sort of comfortable not enjoying. And whatever I did enjoy, it was like, oh, people didn't like this thing. Well, I don't know why. I guess I'll just keep talking to my real friends in real life. And it was sort of like, for me, which is sort of a sad thing, it was sort of this weirdly, <laughs> this weirdly like convicting moment of like how to enjoy things offline, even as, you know, you're not totally a Luddite. So I just think it was interesting because that's this whole book for me. Like, I think that there's probably a section of the sci-fi reading community that only can read this book in the context of its weird culture war controversy. And I think in some ways, to be honest, like I know I'm bordering maybe on some iffy ideas, but I think that's really a bummer because I, I do think that something is lost when the context is so tightly construed around your own thoughts, constricted around your own thoughts that your own thoughts only have so many outlets does that make sense like i just feel like game of thrones reminded me of how happy i am to not care as much like about you know like you and i've talked about like the last jedi stuff like parts of that movie aren't good parts of it are great like i just uh, don't care about the conversation as much as i used to well i I really i don't know i've i've found game of thrones this season to be kind of interesting i've always watched game of thrones sort of at a remove because I was always really interested in it when it started just to see how they would adapt the books just sort of as a, as an exercise and adaptation. Like, so I was more interested in it as for architectural reasons, if you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I've always enjoyed the show. I don't want to pretend that I'm some kind of like 
removed person who didn't <laughs> didn't enjoy the show. I, I am the, the one swords. disinterested uh, mind who can tell you the truth. <laughs> you know, I, I like I like the sword fights. I got a favorite house. You know, I'm not. You know, I used to own some some swag for House Greyjoy. Right. Like, I don't want to pretend I'm above that, but. I, I nevertheless, as much as I liked the show and I really enjoyed the the acting and stuff, I was also sort of had always had this kind of, I guess, sort of meta level thinking going on. And that didn't stop, of course, even as it got out of the books. And, you know, reading the takes about Game of Thrones has always been really fascinating. But something about it this season felt really poisonous to me in a way that I'm not sure if that's just because I'm older and more tired or if the discourse right. in some way changed or if I became wiser or grouchier. Like, I'm not sure what it was. And I, I kept thinking about The Last Jedi as I thought about this. And I, I thought about this a bit on Twitter publicly a bit ago. So maybe right. you, you remember me saying this. But, like, you know, people were criticizing The Last Jedi for various reasons that I'm not going to get into because I don't care. But it became really these sort of formal criticisms, right? People would be complaining about the choices they made with Rey in terms of, like, they, they would cite, well, foreshadowing. And they foreshadowed all this here and they didn't do it here. And it was all became these really sort of high concept, like, this is a badly written story because it doesn't accord with these sort of storytelling con- constructions that I was looking for. Yeah. You know, that, that was kind of the tenor of a lot of the criticism. And the other tenor of the criticism was really personal at people who wrote it that they didn't like. Like, it yeah. wasn't just, I don't like this movie. It was, I don't like Ryan Johnson and I don't like Kathleen Kennedy and I hope they both die. And of course, that was bad for a lot of reasons, uh, partly because Ryan Johnson is great, even as I actually when I realized it actually don't love a lot of his movies, but I still love him. Does that make sense? Um, I think Looper's actually not a very good movie and it makes me very sad to say that, but no, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, no, a Looper is, is an, is a nonsense movie in, in some terms. And I just, I just can't stop liking it. I mean, it's one of those, well, it's actually, to be honest, I think part of what you're getting at is this frustrating experience of seeing people reverse engineer their own taste into some sort of like platonic ideal of storytelling. And, yeah. and it's not that there aren't, I think that there are like, so I, I do think there are like, if you're telling a story, there actually are limitations to what moves you can do. And some people are geniuses and they show us new moves that no one thought of, but there's only so much to work with, right? Like you have characters and like the classic you know, kind of the classic reduction is that you either have a character going on a journey or you have a character at war, right? It's Homer. Someone's trying to get somewhere and it's hard to get there or someone is against someone. And I I think some of that, honestly, I buy some of that. Like, I think that is sort of true. But I guess what's frustrating is that it becomes this really bizarre exercise in grandstanding when it's like, yeah, maybe it's just that like the guy who did the storytelling bad quote unquote i mean he is actually oftentimes completing the formal moves you're talking about what's more difficult is like you didn't like the moves he did (laughs) um which is in some level okay but you're trying to make it into almost a moral point about how one should exist as a narrator or something and that's where like again some of that some of that is interesting to me because i do think i'm interested in what makes stories work but yeah, the grandstanding part, and you're, I mean, there's, a, there's an extra poisonous layer to this, all of this as well, but there's something super, I don't know, if, if nothing else, super, super banal about people telling me that, like, this light sword soap opera needs to have better yada, yada, yada. And that's not to diminish Star Wars. Like, everyone else, I grew up in Star Wars, I legitimately think Empire Strikes Back is a great movie, but there's just something really out of sync with, I don't know with the conversation and the source material no that makes a lot of sense you know people trying to (laughs) 
criticize the criticizing the writing in Star Wars only makes so much sense. Some of them are better than others. I'm not saying that, but yeah. like it's it was never like a, a, no. <laughs> a tremendous like repository of excellent high concept like thinking. It was about good versus evil and laser swords, and I'm all about that. I don't think that's a criticism, but well, and yeah, so often like like what's so like the lines people people remember. You honestly, what you remember actually are not so much the words as how cool Harrison Ford was saying, "I know." Right. Like, yeah, <laughs> like that's that, that's not the like that, that's what's difficult. Right. Like, I, I do think that there's stuff in the last year that annoys me, but it's not because like, well, you know, Rose was this extraneous yada, 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 yada. It's like, well, maybe he just didn't land the idea he had or maybe you didn't like the idea he had. Or also maybe who gives a crap about what you think? Why is your YouTube video an hour and a half? My yeah, God. Really, though. <laughs> well, it's you know, and, and I think as I was thinking about Game of Thrones, I think the people who were mostly mad about Game of Thrones are sort of on the opposite side of I the know. political spectrum for people who are mad about The Last Jedi. I've, I've kind of enjoyed and, that, actually, in some ways. And I don't think it's exactly the same. I haven't seen as many, you know, 70-minute YouTube screeds from, from sort of <laughs> the anti-Game of Thrones, although there's a lot more takes about it. You know, it's, I think it's a different sort of what a, a portion of the internet they live in, I think, is a yeah. bit of it. But similarly, you know... I don't think everything in the last few seasons of Game of Thrones was good. I think there are some very legitimate criticisms to be made about it. I actually mostly agree with the criticisms people raise. Um, But there was this layer of sort of meanness to it, right? It wasn't just, I think that they lost the plot when they lost the source material. Fine. I think they're incompetent hacks. And I'm like, I don't know if that's (laughs) right. I don't think these are the best written TV shows I've ever seen. But I don't think they're incompetent. I think they mostly work. Like, they're rushed in places. Like, I'm I'm not... I'm not going to hold him up as the best TV writing, but I mean, have you guys seen bad TV? Like, <laughs> Well, and it, it is interesting that like, like Game of Thrones sort of created its own downfall in the sense that it desensitized us to exactly how impressive it is technically, right? Yeah. Because you watch the first couple of seasons and you can tell the budget was less, right? Like famously, you know, there's some battles like I'm going to forget the battle because it's, it's a it's the big one where Rob Stark surprises Jamie Lannister. Yeah, um, the uh, whispering the wood woods. or whatever. It's, yeah, not yeah. It, but the yeah, that one. I think it might be that one where like basically it's like you see the dire wolf jump out and the battle's over or something. That's my memory. This is like a seven year old memory, but it's something like that. Like that kind of thing happens where you have a split second because they can't film a whole battle sequence and they can't show the dire wolves for very long or whatever. And so you see the budget and you know expand and expand and the technical stuff expand and expand until by season eight i honestly couldn't believe some of the technical things they were doing episode to episode including like i know there is some wooden bad acting and there was definitely some bad writing that made the acting harder but actually like it was one of the best seasons i think um for amelia clark as far as like she really seemed like she was trying to do a lot of different things with a very limited range, you know, of story. Um, and so it's funny, like, I feel like a lot of the people who are coming down on Game of Thrones um, are some of the same critics who I've read talk about how, like, plot doesn't matter in TV shows, <laughs> you know? It's like, which is like, okay, so here's a technically amazing show that has stumbled in certain ways, but almost because it has desensitized us to how impressive it itself is it sort of doesn't get the benefit of being Game of Thrones anymore. So I'm not going to go into details because I'm not going to spoil anything for this, although the internet has spoiled Game of Thrones. It's so funny to compare it versus Avengers, yeah. where everyone was very hushed about everything, and then Game of Thrones, where everyone's <laughs> tweeting it in live time. But like, it, was, it was buck wild. Uh, 
but you know, there's the huge, the huge in the penultimate episode. There's the big character divining moment where the person right. does the bad thing, and it, you know, half the episode is just watching the person do the bad thing. Right. And like the whole scene with Arya running around in the streets is great. Is just yeah. a phenomenal piece of filmmaking. Like yeah. I don't, I don't like it. Is it is amazing on a technical level it's amazing in the little subplots it tells like with the woman and her daughter and the way that whole thing works out like it's yeah it's a really amazing five or six minutes or whatever it is and i just can't look at that and be like game of thrones is so bad now i mean i well <laughs> like, honestly i don't, know. I don't I if just, not this was on, really good <laughs> honestly if nothing else everyone talks about how they kept rushing the ending but the truth is if nothing else the rushing just highlighted what was always the problem with game of thrones which was that it was a toss-up story to story was the story interesting or not interesting? It depended on the week and who you were following. And I think that was always yeah. a strength slash weakness of, of the series. Um, <laughs> okay. So that's our Game of Thrones podcast. I hope you guys have enjoyed. <laughs> I don't know. We should probably move on to talking about the N.K. Jemison book. I just I think that Game of Thrones had the seeds of its own downfall because it's a whole story built on subverting tropes and not being satisfying, which then had to try to end in a way that was satisfying while juggling a thousand billion characters, some of whom really didn't have anything left to do, and yet who had legions of sort of sports cheering fans cheering right. for them. So I just think, I think it's really hard to end it. I'm not saying they ended it perfectly. They didn't. They flubbed some stuff. But like, I think it's a really hard project, and I'm not really looking to shout at them too much yeah i mean so that, the one that's yeah my game of thrones take honestly the and the my, my take would be um similar but actually if, if i have a note of disappointment it's that as someone who came to the show first and kind of honestly hate watched it in groups and <laughs> like appre- <laughs> appreciated why it was good but also like by the time you know like the like by the time the fifth you know subversion of my love of a hero happened i was pretty over what i felt like was a pretty one note thesis which I do think the last season, like if it's seen just as a thesis, I'm not sure it earns its thesis as far as the heel turn in the penultimate episode goes, but it definitely is a worthwhile thesis, um, which makes me basically have my take is that, um, yeah, I wish I'd read all the books first, as in I wish they were all written <laughs> for me yeah. to have read first is the one thing I would say. Like I, I have come firmly down on the side of I wish Martin could have finished his books and I hope he still does. I hope we get to read his books. Um, but we've read Jimison's books. <laughs> we actually did read them. So let's uh, let's let's talk about this. Cause I so um, maybe let's just do like the fastest recap ever as far as you know, what happens. I know I always make you do these, but if you're up for it, I think you're really good at them. <laughs> I, I'm up to it, but I'm going to do it really quick because I think that as soon as I start talking about details, we just that's the podcast. So yeah. I'm just going to I'm going to do it in the broadest strokes. And I think you can do it with this book in a way that was harder with the last one. I agree. So, uh, you know, the last book ends with Essen and Nassen each trying to get a hold of the obelisk gate, which is the network of all of the floating obelisks that which are the gem crystal things i should probably just assume you've listened to the previous podcast but anyway <laughs> the floating gem things which are floating around the uh which is very crash bandicoot by the way i know that's not yeah. relevant but i mean you know oh the floating gosh. crystals in crash bandicoot yes um anyway i'm sorry that's uh this is a better story than crash bandicoot i just <laughs> <laughs> anyway oh, uh the mother and daughter each trying to get a hold of the obelisk gate to do something with the moon uh, Essen, the mother, wants to catch the moon and restore it to its previous orbit, thereby sort of calming the 
tectonic activity of the world, both because of the sort of gravitic forces and also because the Earth is in some way sentient and will quit being quite so angry at everyone if it's got the moon back. Um, Nasson, however, is angry and believes, because she's had a terrible life, <laughs> that uh, it should just all be over. And so she's trying to catch the moon and then throw it into the Earth, annihilating everything, every person, probably the Earth itself. Um, she wants to just end it. Uh, each of them is going to have to get to Core Point, which is the city on the other side of the world, uh, to try to interface with that. Uh, Nassen goes through there with her guardian, Shafa, who is the, the sort of Templar figure who trained her mother a million years ago and now tried to train her in a more gentle way. And so she has to come to terms a bit with him and the fact that he is sort of partly under the control of the evil Earth. Essen, before she goes down there, basically just because she wants to be friendly, walks with all the people she saved from Castrima, which was the underground geode city. She saved all of them, but broke the geode in the process, so they all have to walk many miles from where they were through a desert to um, the city that she had sort of remotely destroyed. Not destroyed, she killed everyone in it. So they can go and live there and try to keep life going through there. Uh, she's friends with someone who can basically teleport, so she walks with him through the desert, I guess, just out of a sense of solidarity. It's kind of an odd <laughs> choice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but then they both, they all they all end up in Core Point eventually. Uh, many people die in the process, and Essen is trying, they're, they're each you know, struggling over the obelisk gate. Each of them are, are interfacing with the magic, trying to get it done. Essen realizes that uh as they're struggling, that it's killing her daughter, who at this point has moved on from trying to kill the world into turning everyone into stone eaters, which are the sort of stone people. We'll talk about that in more detail later. And Essen gives up and quits fighting because she can't bear to have her daughter die, at which point her daughter realizes that her mother does love her and doesn't turn everyone into stone eaters and instead saves the world. Um, as well, we learn about two subplots. We get a plot from Hoa, who is actually the narrator of the entire uh the entire book talking about how he came to be and how the world got wrecked in the first place, which was he and his friends trying to um, basically not let an ancient evil empire get their way, but they did it in such a way that let the evil earth take over and punish them for uh, basically using it as fuel. And also we get a couple of bits that I think we should talk about because we haven't talked about this, but throughout all of the books, each chapter, not every chapter, many of the chapters ends with a little sort of in-universe scrap of uh, of text, right, which is an in-universe letter right. someone has written or a piece of stone lore, and it becomes clear through reading these that somebody a while ago did a research project and realized that the Aurogenes, the earthquake wizards, have been saving the world from uh, massive earth-shattering cataclysms like every five minutes as opposed to one of these happening every hundred years or so, and so it comes to realize that really all of the history of the world has been is more complicated than people thought, and the origins have been kind of saving the world and getting killed for it, sort of instinctively, for thousands of years. Is that the major thing? So I think that's the major... Yeah, no, I think Oh, and, and then yeah. Essen turns into a stone eater at the end, and the whole book series has been Hoa telling her about her memory because she doesn't have a full grasp on it, which I think you called. Yeah, I think that was my prediction, which I, yeah, which I was pretty happy turned out to be true. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that's, I think that's perfect. So, I, so, um... Without ever being just like the adversarial one, I think I was I was trying to figure out a way to sum up my thoughts of the book that weren't going to be like a thousand kind of splintered examples or me trying to get over technical with what's actually probably simple stuff or honestly rehashing what we've already talked about. Because, you know, this is the third book and I think she writes a certain way and you've read more of her than I have, but these three books definitely 
have all of the same strengths and weaknesses stylistically, except for that I think the first book is constructed formally at a much you know better level, um, a much more intriguing level, I should say. But I, I liked this third book, I think, probably more than the second book, just to keep it at the book club level for a second. Um, there was stuff, I mean, yeah, I, I had some of the same problems I had with the third book that I had with the second book. Um, but I like, like I told you... <laughs> I, you know, I've got a real weakness for uh, lost civilizations, <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of this book spent time in a lost civilization, and I think there were some real problems there. But it was actually it, I, it, it made Hoa narrating a much more organic part of the story as opposed to just sort of this really artificial intrusion, which is what it felt like to me most of the second book. So okay, that's me going on for a while. I told you I was going to be succinct. My succinct thing that I was going to ask you about is I would sort of describe these books as having parts um, which are more enjoyable than the sum, if that makes, you know, that's kind of like, you know, that the parts are not greater than the sum per se, but like she has so many good ideas and so many interesting world building ideas and so many sort of, I mean, she's almost overflowing with this sort of creative um, world building, as I keep coming back to that word, but also character building, right? She's so, there's so many characters that she wants to try and give, you know, their own due. Um, but at times, what it felt like to me is that these individual elements were often a lot more fascinating than what they built kind of as a, yeah, as a unit. You think that's, uh, <laughs> you think that, that holds water or not? I think that's probably true. I don't I don't think the what happens in this book is really all that interesting. Like, if you just lay it out divorced of context, which, of course, is true of most books, but there are still some where I could, you know, if I said, well, this is what happens in the book, you might think that's interesting and I want to read more about it, but I'm not sure if, like, the summary I just gave makes anyone want to read the book. Right. Um, which is a shame because I, I do think this is a good book, and I think the series as a whole is good. I think the second book is definitely the weakest of the three. Yeah. And I think the first book is the best of the three, and I, I don't actually think that's controversial. I think probably what I read online would agree with that. But, yeah. Um, I'd be hard, especially what we've talked about a thousand times already, but like what you, you have the, just that beautiful, complete arc in the first book, and you have the reveal of the three characters being the one character and it's just it's such a good idea and you can't do it again which is why yeah. i liked that this book i thought moved into a whole new territory with hoa especially but also with um nasan right like I, I feel like the first book or sorry the second book was obviously her story as well but this book i don't know i i thought it could take its time with a few things a little more like for example um this this book was really committed to having shafa actually be a generous, genuine, in love, fatherly way with Nassim kind of guy. And in the second book, I just think that that switch happened without without almost any development. Like, it was a total weird heel turn that this time I was already aware of what the book wanted me to think, and then it actually developed how he does care for her. You know what I mean? Like, it actually showed us him caring for her, and it did stuff that I thought was interesting, and I'm not sure it was you know, as complicated as it wanted to be, but it certainly held my attention in a way that it didn't last time as much, to be honest. No, I would agree. I, I think that once the relationship was established that way, it was more interesting than watching it get established in the second book. I, yeah. I would generally agree. Yeah. Which, of course, is the second book curse, right? The second I book know, yeah. does a lot of setting things up that later, which, you know, this did. Like, the, a lot of the stuff that was interesting in this book was stuff that was directly, you know, you couldn't just do it. You had to set it's it up true. in the second book. I almost so. think, I mean, so here's the second thing I would throw at you 
I don't know. I can get your own thoughts in. Sorry, but I, I did think more than once, and we've mentioned Lord of the Rings enough times. I almost wish that she had taken like seven years or ten years to write these books, because I do think that there is so much about the worlds that she knows and that she is clearly trying to communicate through some sort of like shorthand or some you know she she does a lot of you know because ho was a second person narrator and talking about the past from a present point in the narrative or whatever there's just there's just a lot of summarizing and jumping ahead and and stuff that i think is like it is interesting like i know what she's going for but truthfully i don't think that she handled throughout all three books to be honest but definitely the last two i don't think she handled the balance of information as as well as she might have if the books were actually longer or had just taken a lot more time in maybe their own editing process or something. Because like I just feel like she sometimes was telling me things I didn't have questions about and often not telling me things I had questions about, even just like basic world stuff. And it's like she couldn't decide how much to just put you in the past. Like So for example, in Hoa's story, she couldn't decide how much to just put you there and leave you with the jargon and sort of like let you see it from a first person you know, experience of the world. Cause she even has that, right? Like she has these characters who are of the world but because they're isolated. You kind of have that classic newcomer explainer, right? Where they, they leave their prison and they go into the wide world and they can kind of through their own reaction, teach the reader what's going on. Like she sets that up really well, but there's just times when I thought that she just honestly didn't either tell me enough or she kept trying to interrupt me, which is almost like saying, Hey, um, I'm not being an asshole. It's like, oh, is this guy being an asshole? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like when you suggest something <laughs> like that you're trying to cut off, but then you put the suggestion in the person's mind. She kept doing that for me a little bit. There's definitely stuff in the past chapters, which I actually mostly liked. But like, so there's a whole plot, which I think is, is interesting for thematic reasons. This book has a lot of thematic resonance throughout the three sections yeah. in a way that I uh, liked, where we're all sort of again and again being taught about how people in power are lying to everyone else about what happened, and right. so they have to re restructure how they view the world in order to, you know, I think that's good. And then one of the major ones in the past is about this ethnic minority, the Nice or Nice, uh, I assume it's Nice, who, you know, the ruling class in Sil Anagest, which is the old city uh, nation. I mean, it's a, I think it's a city and a nation, you know, sort of rec uh, relentlessly persecuted and then sort of turned into magical batteries and ever all the sort of ar orogeny stuff is, is all sort of tied up in that relationship. I lost a little track of some of what happened Oh yeah, throughout that whole historical arc. And it's because she doesn't want to give you three chapters of, you know, Meister Lewin explaining to Bran how the houses of Westeros work. And I get that. But I, I definitely, like, I'm still not 100% sure I have all of that lined up, you know, well, and she does, lined up. So I actually had this thought. So she, it, and it's, it's, again, it's like a good problem to have because she's doing such weird kind of new ideas in some ways with, like, this is a very abstract magic, right? In fact, it's like a technological magic, right? So when we go, when we go back to the old world, and I think she actually, again, I think she kind of gets caught in two minds, often to her detriment, but she's dealing with these things that are both engines and also magic, right? And I think she's really committed to not letting it be one or the other. Like, these are, you know, uh, <laughs> these earth wizards are actually just straight up wizards, and in the past they were even more wizardy, and yet 
there's a way in which she wants to deal with how we create and destroy the very life that is given to us. And so there's a lot of stuff that, stuff that might work like, you know, metaphorically there, but honestly, it, oh, it's almost like a language issue. Like you and I have talked about this, like sometimes when you're describing something weird and you use a certain sort of concrete figurative language, it's like the wall had eyes. Wait, did that wall literally have eyes? Or is that wall just like, is it like a bug from the controllers? Do you know what I mean? Like, I think she gets caught up in that a lot because it's not the characters, the tuners or the origins, the kind of the wizard characters, they're not doing a lot physically, right? It's all mental and it's all kind of projecting themselves and so forth. I think that's a really hard thing to pull off, but I think at times the language just got away from her where she was trying to describe it and it was just like, I literally don't know what's happening as far as like, I know what you're trying, I know what you're trying to say, but you're trying to give all this mechanistic language when I wish you would either like almost strip it down to a more uh, raw mechanistic language that I could tell was sort of encoded and buried in the culture or that you would explain more, but like either explain less or explain more as the thing is happening. But again, part of that's because I think she's, she's dealing with this really abstract almost like kind of conception that's very visual. And some of the stuff maybe was just visual in a way that I'm not visual. You know, she's describing these things <laughs> that in a, in a way that's hard to follow for someone who's not maybe as visual as she is. No, I think that, I think that makes sense. I also, I, I'm also not a terribly visual person and have sometimes a hard time with, with things that are written by people who clearly are. And I think there, there might be something to that. Like I'm always really bad at understanding what physical spaces are. In oh, a book. Yeah. Like if it's a book where like the dimensions of it are here and from here I can see the this and from here I can see that. I'm terrible at that. I get upside down and it's not the writer's fault. Like, well, and she, well, <laughs> so. but, and I will say, but, and she, but she's in a hard space where like, so if you're writing an old Western book, right, you, you would never be like, hey, I like when you want to say I reached for my gun, you wouldn't be like, I reached past my right hip to just above yeah. my left, you know, whatever, like you wouldn't give all that detail and I think sometimes she's tempted to give all that detail because she's describing something that's completely made up. But actually, I think it works against her. Like, I, I, it feels less real at times the more she over-explains things. And then she, I think she knows she does this because she uses Hoa to sometimes pull out. Or like, there's this huge shift at one point when he says, you know, we all decided to rebel. Maybe I'm maybe I'm maybe I'm telling the story too fast. I don't know, but I just think we need to get ahead <laughs> or whatever, right? It was like yeah, I, that I mean I don't think that's the best way to do it. And I'm I'm giving all these complaints because like I think these are the ways that you kind of um, weave the various elements of a story together. It like it matters how the information gets to the reader, and it matters how you balance things. And I think I'm kind of like the second book. I'm I'm nitpicky partly because like when she punched through that. Um, it was a very fun and almost, to be honest, it was a pretty meaningful read even. Like I actually, like I had a lot of questions about the role of motherhood in this book um, that come from my own projection as a parent probably. But the final stuff with Nasson and Essen, when Essen decides to sacrifice herself, I found it very meaningful. And I found the language there when it talked about their fighting it just, it was such a blow-by-blow blow active language that, like, I still don't know what's happening, but also I felt like I did more than I had earlier with some of the similar magic stuff. One of the things about this these books, which is tough, is it's it's really trying, they're, they're trying very hard not to 
just fall back on fantasy tropes, right? Yeah. Like the and the world building is so much more it's the world is so much weirder and more different than I think most of the sort of stock tropes you can pull from. It's a really I think it's a very hard project because you compare it to something like Patrick Rothfuss's Name of the Wind. Have you read that? No. Sorry. It's it's one of the other sort of big fantasy. Yeah, no, it's yeah. I, mean, I, right I know now. it, but yeah. And I think it's pretty good and it does some clever structural things. Um and it does, you know, it subverts a lot of tropes and stuff, but it's also basically set in the forgotten realms, right? Like in the right. D&D and not literally like there's a number of differences and some Rothfuss Stan is going to come kill me for what I said. But I mean, he's definitely still, you know, you've got taverns, you've got people with swords, you've got little yeah. petty kings everywhere. And so when he wants to differentiate something and have a much weirder part, he, he, he can do that. And it's not the whole book is weird. Whereas, you know, I don't know another and I, I'm not an expert and exhaustive reader on fantasy. There's probably stuff more like this, but like the way the technology level is just not does not map on to an actual technology level in the real world right like it cuz they've got crossbows instead of gunpowder but they also have like penicillin you know right uh, in a way that i thought was really compelling and meaningful because it's it's what they could focus on with their limited resources um and similarly the the past with the floating crystals which are also sort of computers like she explicitly likens the obelisks and stuff to to computers with programming language on, right. on a few times including at the big point at yeah. the end when she has the you know she's literally having her choose a computer like it, it says mm-hmm. as as the onyx uh the onyx obelisk is floating above her and it's filled with basically the programming that sn gave her to catch the moon and it literally says effectively execute yn is what she says like she she writes it as execute right. y slash n and then and nasen chose yes like so, she's li- literally trying to rec- you know, make these feel like computers, and they go to the moon at one point. Like, but she's not trying to make it sound exactly like a traditional sci-fi world. It's got this kind of biopunk, you know, Vandermeerian born thing going on. Totally. But it's not just that. Like, it's not just the sort of the company and born and those Vandermeer stories. It's a whole other thing, and it's what's really cool. And I think it's part of why the books are so propulsive and interesting to read because you really don't know what's going to happen, and the world building is so interesting. But you can also get lost really easily because it's so unfamiliar and she doesn't want to spend a lot of time sort of staring at the reader and saying, so here's how, you know, mm-hmm. this made up magic thing works, which I think is, is generally a good instinct. And so what I'm trying to say is sometimes I do agree that it doesn't quite work, but I think it's a much harder project than most other projects. And so I, when it does work, I think it's really, really cool. Like well, I, I like the vehicles. I like the vehicles, <laughs> the vehicle animals. I think they're pretty good. <laughs> well, actually, so that's, that's, um, when Nasan and Shafa go, you know, in, in their own vehicle and they see Father Earth, the core of Earth and whatever, I, that's actually that was one of my favorite scenes because I thought that it actually everything that you were kind of learned happened in action. And it's not I mean, I'm someone, OK, in my own terrible writing, which is, you know, doesn't matter to anyone. But I, I, I get the instinct of like, I think that there are ways to write that are interesting beyond just like having actors, you know, walk across a stage. Right. But I do think there's a way in which action unfolding in real time is always sort of the default for a reason. And I think especially when you're dealing with uh, stories that rely so much on the balance of the reader, knowing enough to still want to know more, but being confused enough that you're like, whoa, I, I, you know, I have to know more. Um, 
I think a lot of times it really, I I think a lot of times it's just, it's best to put that in action. And I I actually think part of the first book is so good because we get all these scenes with, um, with cyanite, right? She did like all these things of her just doing normal origin stuff, right? Without her actually necessarily being part of this bigger multi thousand year generational story. Um, and not that that story, that story is what makes these books, I think ambitious, but I loved it when she could sort of like focus in a way that was like, oh, this VML, like we're getting so much more time to see how weird it is. You know, we're not just told like, like at one point when they, they, the VML they get into in the old world with Hoa is a grasshopper and they hop to the moon. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like great. But also I didn't like that one. <laughs> Partly because it felt like a joke when I didn't know what the joke was. Like did they literally hop to the moon. That's they can't have. But the other thing I would say is I think that she was trying to do something really difficult as well. And that she wasn't like part of how she was transfiguring her fantasy land. Right. Is sort of committing to this sci-fi model of like technology evolved. Right. Or technology, if not evolved, <laughs> I, I don't know, sort of welded with magic. And I think that also sometimes let her down because I feel like she couldn't decide if the magic worked sort of like it does in Wrinkle in Time when like you have a scientific proposition, but then also they just like they think something and they go to a different world and there's no explanation, which is sort of perfect because there couldn't be. Right. But she also seems caught between that and like something like Parable of the Sower, where you see the world as we know it kind of destroyed and involved into something new. And I, I think some of the references that she wants you to have in mind aren't helpful. Like when she talks about the old buildings that like, why would they have railings? You could just, you know, have a vine catch you if you fall. Like on one hand, that was great. But on the other hand, you're making me think that this is literally our world. And that sometime in the future, we discover that everything is magical, right? Which I think is, it just raises a lot of questions that I don't think we need to be thinking about, you know? Um, whereas I think if it was kind of, for me at least, disconnected from sort of our our actual world, if it didn't have some of those callbacks, it'd be easier to get lost a little bit in, um, in the weirdnesses of what's going on. For example, like, I love that the ancient world we go back to is some sort of bizarre plant life technology future right we don't go back to new york city you know what i mean like we don't go back to beijing or something we go to some other crazy world which is just as foreign and i think that's really smart yeah i was you know I, i'm not 100 percent sure if this is supposed to be set in the future of this world or not but i i do think it was a lot more interesting to go to this yeah this biopunk it's not punk I'm, i gotta quit putting punk on the end of things People no are no biopunk's great but Bio you know what i mean great. this <laughs> well, i mean that's that's a term i didn't make that up but like this, no, I know. that's sort of you know weird ecological you know technology thing um rather than like you say going to new york i think it was much cooler even though i think maybe my favorite no that's not true but one of my favorite bits in the book is when the stone eaters they're not stone eaters yet but the tuners right the people who are Mm -hmm. ho and his friends are taken to the museum which is the ancient building that's been there for a long time to look at stuff people don't understand and it's made of concrete instead of some sort of living plant matter right and um, they're all scared of it like it's fragile. <laughs> yeah, that's actually that. No, that was really good because it couldn't adapt to anything in the nature. Yeah. 
yeah, it was just this static thing, and so if something happened, it would just fall over, as opposed to, you know, in some way growing and changing itself to protect the people inside it. And I thought that was such a fun... Well, and this is where, I mean, this is partly where I think I'm in the minority of readers in general, because, like, it is so fun that I kind of, like, I think, I... I think I think these books could be twice as long. I mean, I, and like I know I said that the second book could be could have been cut, and it definitely could have. But like, I, I there's a project that exists in these books where like the Hoa timeline goes so much long. Like we have stuff that I I, I get that like you don't want to ever kill your magic by explaining it too much. But like the Guardians are sort of this untapped story that she sort of gestures to like yeah the Earth put some of itself in their neck but they were resistant. And so there's sort of an in-between entity. And it's like, that might be the most interesting story in this whole universe. You know, how are these people both slaves to earth, but also protecting humans. And like, we almost, we don't know anything of their, their, I don't know. It's, it's partly me, like probably just being a Tolkien nerd of like, what's the exact, you know, everything of this world. But part of it's that I think she has such an expansive and almost at times like, um, tangential mind that like she pulls in so many threads it's like that thread is too it's too interesting to sort of just be an aside okay so i want to ask you another question one of the things we haven't talked about in this series at all and she's been doing it since the beginning is the little uh sort of diegetic bits of scrap lore that are at the end of not all the chapters but many of them and i didn't go back to explain there's probably a pattern as to which ones get it and which ones don't and i don't know what it is but you know what i'm talking about where it's like here's a here's a quote from the the stone lore which is kind of the ten commandments or here's a you know here's a here's a bit of dialogue from two people a thousand years ago so this book not all of it but a lot of it is the journal entries or is stuff concerning um, a research project by this person, Yiter, whose last, whose use cast name and last name I've lost, or Yater, probably. I always want the A-E to be an I sound, because I think it is in, like, proper old Roman Latin, and my one minute of Latin, that's the one <laughs> thing that stuck. It meant that I mispronounced everything in Game of Thrones for a long time. It should be Meister, not Maester. It should be Iman, not Aemon. Oh, anyway. yeah. Um, it doesn't matter. Uh, but anyway, this person who... Uh, I think she, although I'm not sure, uh, has been putting together this research project into all of the sort of times in the past that the Aragines have accidentally saved the world, right? And the sort of climax of that little bit is when she realizes, look, we thought there was a season-level event, you know, an apocalyptic-level event every however long it is, you know, every couple of hundred years. But actually, everyone I've caught, I've caught one like every 20 years, and maybe I'm missing some, where some just, you know, hedge wizard has fixed it and then put to death for their trouble. I don't think we, I think we've been really underestimating how important origins have been to the, you know, to the sort of continued survival of the of the world. I thought that was an interesting sort of take, because I don't think in the first two books those bits were quite as much of a through line of a narrative the way it was in this book. Yeah, they, they, definitely, right to you? Yeah, they definitely weren't coherent as coherent, because isn't one of the ending bits is like, Hey, we're we're killing your funding so that like the guardians don't murder you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, which I which I liked a lot actually. Overall, I do think. I mean, I think actually this is the danger of this stuff. I, I think the coherence also risks redundancy. You know, because I, I I think that I I liked it, but I actually again I almost wanted to know more of what was being discovered because i do feel like she does such a good job showing you how essential the origins are to like keeping things stable that it didn't feel totally to me like new information to be honest um but what i liked is that honestly like um 
I think in the last couple of books, I would kind of skim read the ending stuff, you know, like, because it was sort of just like, it was almost like video game. Like, you know, you find a note from the old book or whatever, right? Like, yeah, I have like, a qu- put a pin in that because I want to talk to you about that later, but keep going. <laughs> but yeah, but this one, I, I do think I liked the coherence in the sense that, um, that yeah, that it actually, it wasn't just a tag that was sort of arcane texture. It actually was its own kind of, you know, mini propulsion, um, which was good, I thought. So I, I wanted to talk to you about that, actually, because I think you're absolutely right that what it's like, what it reminds me of the most is those little, you know, one page scraps you find in Dragon Age that are all diegetic information, oh, totally. right? Like in, yeah. in Mass Effect, you get lore entries, but it's almost always from some omniscient, you know, right? the Systems Alliance. It's even got voiced in Mass Effect. <laughs> Do you remember what's voiced in Mass Effect 1 in what has got to be the most arcane choice? No one is going to sit there and listen to this guy narrate the codex. <laughs> yeah, what are you no, doing? I re- no, I remember. <laughs> uh, anyway, in Dragon Age, which I think is a lot more fun, it's all diegetic information, right? It's all the travels of this person writing, you know, the sort of... Uh, oh, I can't think of his name, but the old ancient Greek who was writing about all the animals. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, you know, that one. <laughs> But I do know uh, what anyway. you're talking about. <laughs> but, and some of them have little mini narratives, right? Like we follow Brother Genitivi as he goes through a variety of places in Dragon Age. And I've always really liked those in Dragon Age. And I, I've actually, I've used them as a DM like a couple times. I have actually, when I'm DMing in a made up world, I mean, they're all made up, but you know, not an established campaign setting. I will do it as a little writing exercise. I'll try to write 750 words on some idea I want them to know about without stopping the game. And A, I think that's a fun thing to do. That's just Bill likes that. But B... Reading through these books, it's really reminded me that, uh, you know, Jemison plays games, right? Oh, like, yeah. Jemison plays video games. Uh, she has a Twitch account, right? Like, uh, and I think these books are one of the first sort of really, you know, good uh, and important fantasy novels I've read where that has been an obvious through line. Does that make sense? Oh, like, a lot of the yeah. great fantasy books don't... Um, were before video games were as big or don't feel as much like it. Even, I think Rothfuss plays games too, but it doesn't, uh, The Name of the Wind and such, it still doesn't feel quite as much like it. That feels like a D&D game to some extent. But like, there's definitely parts of this. It's the it's the codex, you know, inf- stuff she's finding at the end, but it's also the way the magic works. She's really thought a lot about not just arcane, how does the magic system work, but like, how would you use it? You know what I mean? Like, it just feels a lot more not like a video game, but like it's informed by certain game design principles. And I just thought that was really cool. I guess I don't really have a thesis no, other I, than no, that so happened. I, well, I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought it up. Cause, I mean, I, th- I think you're, you're better versed in fantasy and video games than I am. But actually, I kept having this thought that I, I'm not sure I can enunciate any better than you just did, which is that these actually do feel like video game novels to me. And not in a pejorative sense at all, but in, in sort of the structural sense of like what is propulsive is usually um, – this one person's journey against various trials and obstacles. And that's like, okay, that's every story ever. But actually, honestly, the the balance of our focus on Essen with what we know and don't know of the world, it, it reminded me of video games, especially as someone who didn't play a lot of video games growing up. Like, I remember the first time I played Mass Effect, and it was disorienting because I was so immediately aware that this world was way bigger than I would have guessed but also because I'm tied to Shepard, I can't actually get my hands around it the way that I could have in like a normal novel or something, right? Um, and I think that this novel actually, weirdly enough, reminded me of that experience. Also the experience of Dragon Age, where like you can tell that there's just out of sight this much bigger history 
but you're never going to get all of it because it's really tied to these individual cast of characters. And again, that's sort of true for all novels, but there's a way in which she's not concerned with setting so much as... Uh, she's not concerned with, like, I guess, yeah, setting in a way that a novel usually is. She's she's using setting as... I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, as a playthrough map almost, I think, to be honest. Um, Wait, I just had I just had an idea. I'm not sure I like it, but I'm going to throw it out here. Please. Okay? Unlike a lot of fantasy writers, she is interested in setting, and she's interested in, you know, power structures and politics, right? She has a lot of sort of points about how power structures work. I'm not sure she's that interested in history, though. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. No, I think that's probably right, actually. Um I think, well, I think especially because I think the biggest point to her not being interested in history is that the one time we have a chance to go back in time to make things clearer, Hoa's world is way more complicated and weird than the world of the stillness. <laughs> and so I think you're right. I think actually she's chosen setting over history in her flashback. I think that's a really good way to say it, actually. You know, because you read Game of Thrones and such, and it's very clearly that he's he's written out 2000 years of English history, only they have dragon. Like he's, he's very clearly his inspiration is, and he's been very honest about this, like the war of the roses and stuff right. like that. Whereas I don't think, no, you're totally I right. Know, I have to think about that more, but I, th- I think, you know, and, and I, a lot of history in this book is erased, right? Like it's the stuff happened, but no one knows what it was. It's, it's right. missing or we don't, it's really piecemeal. Um, which I think is also to some extent true of the inheritance trilogy, which you haven't read. So it's only so useful for me to talk about, but like, a lot of the history of that has been kind of erased or lied about. And so it's actually pretty hard to have a coherent through line about history. There's probably something about being part of a sort of diaspora and a colonized nation, which I'm probably not equipped to talk about, but there's probably something about that being, you know what I mean? A sort of a post-colonial project. Oh, totally. No, I think you're right. And I, I, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm just trying to also, to, I wish I could also crystallize this thought better. Cause I do think, as I think through the books, you know, you jump from like, location to location and you sort of have the bigger world hinted at but really oftentimes like for example you're encountering and fighting guardians in this book before you even know that guardians have magic right they just do things that are inexplicable and you have to learn asan has to learn which of course is told a lot of times in second person you have to learn how to react to them before you totally know what they are which is exactly the experience of a game right that these elements are put in front of you as obstacles and you only learn about them after they're already like integral to the story which again some of this is just storytelling but the way it's handled especially with the different um settings yeah i think i actually think the point that i was hoping to build up to as you started saying this was like they're making this into a tv series this would be a great video game <laughs> yeah so two points one neither of us has said this but we probably should the other way it's like a video game is it's happening to you Exactly. It's yes. Second person. It's first person. Video yeah. games are it's in like second person. It's first person, person player. Yeah. No. Exactly. <laughs> I want to talk about the TV show for a minute. I don't think this will make a good TV show Same. unless it is really drastically departed from the book, because I think everything interesting in this book is psychological and invisible. Like the magic is invisible. I mean, not not the effects of it are, but she's very clear that you don't have to point and waggle your fingers and say abracadabra. She says it a lot that right. people do it when they want to show to the other people what they're doing. It's to not surprise the muggles. You know what I mean? Yep. It's not. Because you have to do that. And, you know, are you going to cast three different actresses to play her in the fifth season? Like, I guess you could... Obviously, the kid is a different actress, but... Right. You know, I'm not not sure. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I, and so much of it is these sort of internal debates about, oh my God, magic doesn't work the way I thought it did, which is, you know, I, I think an interesting idea, but is going to get real weird to try to visualize. I also think it has real potential because of what you're saying that, um, so much is internal and so much is gained by that interiority, including like, you know, Essen is oftentimes being kind of wry and sarcastic, right? But the situations, if it was just like a, yeah, a televised version of events, it's sort of like it has the chance to be flattened out into a pretty banal, grim, dark apocalypse fantasy thing. Do you know what I mean? Whereas I actually yeah. think if you wanted to make this an interesting TV series, basically you have to put personality into it in a way that like is unique to television, which I don't know why I think this, but I actually think you would have to make it a lot kind of more um, almost lighthearted and rompy without losing any of the, you know, the stakes of the situation, but you would give it a lot more personality if you sort of round out um, the grimness of things. Because I think if you don't, you know, there's no other way to convey the interiority of things, right? Like, um, it's just, I think the potential for it to just be a really like (laughs) depressing show in the sort of, you know, kind of, model of i don't know i feel like it's not as many of this any anymore but like yeah i think you should you'd have to go almost a light-hearted route to give it enough personality to survive the translation but i actually i'm serious when i say it'd be better as a as a video game that would be a more interesting adaptation i think i i mean i, I think there's some truth to that um I'd play it. I would play that video game. <laughs> I would definitely play that video game. Especially, like, what if you... I mean, I think you'd have to play as both Nassan and Essen, or what if you had to choose? You know what I mean? Like, I, there's lots of things you could... You have to have, like, a lot of resources to pull it off, but it'd be, you could do... Yeah, a lot of interesting threads there. I haven't played a lot of role-playing games where the characters are at odds with each other. I think I've only played one off the top of my head where you play multiple characters who are at odds it's not a very good game it's arc the lad twilight of the spirits not a great game in a very much third tier jrpg franchise but the two characters you you oscillate between two characters throughout the whole game it eventually comes out that they're brothers spoilers for this 2005 it doesn't matter uh it's very it's very very clear that's what this is this is not a subtle video game right uh and they're on opposite sides of the sort of humans and monsters divide they're each half human and half monster, and one looks more human and one looks more monster. And then they're kind of working in their own stories that become more and more involved until eventually they come to a head because they both want to get into like the evil ancient temple or whatever it is. And you have to pick which side you play for the fight, and you fight the other party and win. And you don't kill them, right? But you 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 win, and then that team for the rest of the story, you know. That's exactly what not... I was going to suggest, that you would have to pick between Nassan and Essen. I'm so annoyed that someone thought of this 14 years ago. <laughs> well, I mean, let me tell you what. I am the only person who remembers that video game, so don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, that's great, man. <laughs> so I, I, I did some looking around on reviews for this book just because I was kind of curious, and I came across uh, the NPR review, which was written by Amal El-Motar, who is a... Uh, genre fiction writer. She wrote some weird fiction I read, uh, a short story collection called The Honey Month, which I read parts of and liked and then got distracted. Uh, She's got a book coming out shortly she wrote with a guy named Max Gladstone called This Is How You Lose the Time War, which is an epistolary novel between two, like, time-traveling spies on opposite sides of a time war falling in love. And so, you know, I'm gonna buy that book. Uh, That sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, she wrote a couple reviews for, not all three books, but she wrote the NPR review for The Obelisk Gate and for The Stone Sky, and they're not 
terribly interesting pieces of writing. I don't, not intended to be, right? They're reviews for a uh, you know, general focus website. But she talks in the third review for this book about one of the reasons this book is interesting is because it's it's not at all... Keeping things as the status quo is bad, right? Like the worst, in some ways, the worst possible outcome for the characters would be to keep things in the status quo. Like it would be, in some ways, the world flat out ending would be better, right? Right. Like this, this book is very much not about trying to keep things the way they are. Whereas, you know, the argument is something like Lord of the Rings, really it is, well, let's just all kind of keep things in our sort of pastoral setting. I think that's a slightly reductive read, but I don't think it's inaccurate that the book is sort of inherently conservative in that respect, right? It's skeptical of... You're trying to preserve something. Yeah, and it's skeptical of, you know, like industrialization and stuff like that. It is it is about conserving something in the literal sense of conservative. Right. Whereas this book is is super not, right? Like this book is all about some kind of revolutionary change and it's about how ways that can go very badly <laughs> but it's also like it's a necessity right like it has to be done we just have to try to do it correctly and i just uh i guess i don't have much other to say than that is interesting and a lot of fantasy is not about that you're saving the world by keeping it safe from some external force whereas in this you're saving the world by annihilating it and putting it back together in a way that's better that and is so that interesting. is part of why this is an interesting book yeah no i and i i think i've i've, I've been thinking about um a few ideas along those lines but i'm glad you pointed to that review because that does crystallize a few you know blurry thoughts i was having one of which is that um i guess this would be in line with that so uh, is the ending then a happy one or should they have done something different because the ending is sort of reparation right so like there's no reparation for some ill deeds but I mean, Essen dies, that's bad, but they do sort of quell the fires and end the seasons, um, or potentially they end the seasons. Um, and I guess the only thing I would say that I thought was interesting in this stuff is that Hoa tells Nassan, you know, they'll make a better world if you tell them to, if you make them make a better world. Um, and I guess that probably falls in line with what you're saying. Or do you think it bucks against it a little bit? Because I think it might, in some sense, buck against it a little bit. Because it does kind of replace a upheaval with a top-down NASA dictatorship, potentially. <laughs> well, but it's a completely different system, right? Like, uh, like the Guardians are all dead, right? Like, I think they're literally all dead. Right. Because Essen draws <laughs> Essen needs to get a bunch of magical power to do something and she realizes that the secret headquarters of the guardians are below her feet which we did learn before that uh although it was kind of rushed <laughs> it was pretty and convenient. so she's just like well earlier on she's like i need extra power well there's all these guardians here no that would be bad they're all hibernating it literally hibernating and she's like well that would be bad i shouldn't kill all these people just to do what i want and then later on she needs a bunch of power at like the saving the world moment she's like well uh, <laughs> she... <laughs> you know, you gotta break a few eggs you know <laughs> And she blood magics to death all of the guardians, and you know, that's you know probably fine. They're kind of monstrous, but the uh, uh, you know she, they've completely reshaped the way the society works, right? By doing that, like the origins now can, they don't have some external force holding them down on a grand scale. There are going to still individual lynchings and stuff going on. I think she even calls it lynching. She does, yeah. Um, Hoa says the word lynching, yeah. Yeah, um, which I thought was not inappropriate, but certainly a a choice with the capital C. Um, 
not I think it probably makes sense. I think it's appropriate. And I think if she'd done it too much, it would have maybe put it too on the nose. But well, I actually, no, I, I agree. I think <laughs> I think waiting till the end. That's that's the beauty of endings is people are waiting for meaning. So you can get away. Yeah. You can get away with more. If you'd said lynching in the first book, I think it just makes it. It, you, you can you you put your feet in cement whereas if you get to the ending and you've already built this as this expansive non-allegorical thing yeah you get to say lynching because you've earned it you know yeah i think that makes sense um so you know the whole point is that it's not clear what the world's going to look like now but what it's not going to look like is the way it did 10 minutes ago or even before this most recent season and so i do think it's it's still you know it, they did really up uh, shape things up even i mean because even a nasen based orogenic dictatorship is very different from any other world they've had before do you know what i mean like it still looks nothing at all like any of the societies we've seen in the past so i'm not sure i'm quite answering your question no you are no no i i think i mean no no, i i think i mean i was just honestly posing a question that i i actually think that reading is not just like a good reading i think it's the reading of the book right that like um Sometimes you can't start over. Alabaster continually says, or at least says enough times that I kept thinking about it, that like I had to destroy the world so we had a chance at saving the world. And actually, by the way, as a side note, his little sort of random journal entries into Nassim's chapters, I liked. I thought that was a great – like she, she loves to do multiple voices and intrusive stuff. And um, I actually liked that there was like almost – except for a little bit afterward, there was almost no context. She just dropped them in trusting you to know what was going on. And I thought that was really, really yeah. smart. Um, yeah, late, later on, she explains how the yeah. and came across these, but it's not until I think they're all done. Yeah, it's <laughs> all done. Yeah. And I thought that was great. Um, but as far as sort of this, like, you know, kind of idea of wiping out the old rule, cause it doesn't deserve to continue. I think, I think it makes sense. And I, I think part of what is brave about the ending, if I can use the word brave is that Hoa does say, like, without guardians, I mean, origins could kill everyone, right? He kind of yeah. says this is actually a choice now, you know? It is, it's, yeah, it could be horrible in any number of ways, but it'll be a choice. And I think that's sort of a, a, it's almost like a dangerous idea, right? Because it's not just saying, like, look, everyone's in the right place to do the right thing. It's sort of this radical call for, like, freedom of choice <laughs> in a certain sense, you know? Um, within the context of the book, obviously, I think if you, if you abstract it too much, you get into some really silly ideas as far as like you're imposing on the book, not that the book is silly, but you're imposing on the book. Um, but as far as in the book, yeah, I think actually it is, I think you're right. I mean, I think, I think it does follow from that reading. Um, I just think I was surprised in some ways that, that she, uh, that she kind of left it with this, like (laughs) this NASA dictatorship possibility, um, which was not bad. I think part of me wants to read about Nassan's life <laughs> going <Yeah>. forward. <laughs> um, but yeah, but that actually answers one of the questions I had, which I was, I was kind of curious, you know, if, if this, if you, what, what about this book uh, you thought was meaningful and sort of what it had to say about power and society. But I think that about captures it actually, I get that it's the ending to like every adventure series of like the hero sacrifices themselves. But I actually got to say, based on the choices Essen made to abandon her 10 year old daughter, because that's the one place where um, I, I didn't always understand the motivation. I think some of it was very convenient for Essen to not go after her daughter. And I think there's a lot of convenient stuff like the stone eaters can and, and can't do stuff. And it's, it sometimes is, is left unclear why they're not doing more, but um, 
that she sacrificed her daughter as sort of an ultimate, you know, salve on their relationship. Again, like you said earlier, kind of just spoken plainly without context is maybe not that interesting. But because the novel is continually about, all three novels, I should say, Essen and Cyanite trying to basically have and save her children, <laughs> that she actually finally does it, was pretty meaningful. For me, I mean, I thought that was a pretty great moment. But yeah. All right. Well, I think we've we've come pretty close to exhausting what we want to talk about. I just want to do my... At this point, it's it, I've done it every other time, so now it's a pattern because it's three, and uh, <laughs> which is the things that are dope in this book sort of call out. Uh, there's a lot of things in this book that are still really dope. Um, for instance, the obsidian forest that they run across, which is both a natural thing that can happen and in this case very clearly a trap <laughs> created by one of the origins where they walk into the uh, – it's near the desert, and there's just these shards of obsidian sticking out of the ground in a long forest and everyone knows to be careful about them for natural reasons. And then also, so you would have to go around them. And Essence senses out with some orogeny and realizes that there are traps everywhere around it. So this is very clearly something that someone has created. It is not a naturally occurring hazard. It is something that has been created to make people go around it and fall into a bunch of pit traps. That's pretty cool. Um, I've already talked about the vehicles a bit and the fragile concrete. But I will say again, that is cool. Also, uh, you like lost civilizations. I like underground civilizations. Oh, same, I read same, same, same. too much R.A. Salvatore, <laughs> Menza Baranzan stuff. And so if you give me an underground civilization, I'm happy. Amen. Uh, so w- the, one of the ruined cities, we, or not ruined, I should say, but one of the old cities, one of the dead civs we come across, which is where they, uh, Nassan and Shafa kind of take the space elevator to the other side of the world, is underground. Um, so I, I already like it. But the big reveal is that it didn't used to be underground, that it was the site of an erupting volcano, which created a shell around the whole thing because the origin stopped it from flooding the whole city. And so now it's an underground city. And I liked that. That was pretty cool. Um, the onyx, when it teleports across the, you know, across the world to hover over the, over the, you know, the final battle with a, I think she calls it a loud blat. It's a funny word, but I knew exactly what sort of noise it makes. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> like that's Like, I had true. a very clear picture of what that, that was. Yes, same, same, you same. Know, it made that sort of Reaper horn from Mass Effect 3 kind of noise. <laughs> I heard it very, very clearly. Uh, that was really cool. So I think I think that's most of my list of super cool things. But, and, you know, I'm not going to pretend that that's anything other than just stuff I liked. But I do think it's important when reading a book like this to remember that I think it does have a lot to say about power and structure and, and sort of it's it's a cool literary project and it's also just a good fun book to read where cool stuff happens it can be both well and also actually it's one of the it's one of the funniest tensions is that um with any book like this but this one especially for me at least is that it's written in a way even sentence and sen- sentence to sentence right even the second person there's like an urgency like it wants you to sort of like go faster and faster and yet the really cool things, especially because she so often introduces them with like a technical term. Um, like she uses real, I think like, you know, kind of animal insect names at times to kind of tell you what something looks like that. I actually like, I also want to go slower at times because I want to see what's happening, which is always the mark of a good, I mean, fantasy is at least partly always about world building. And um, for all of my complaints, which I, I, I stand by, to be honest, she definitely has like, some of the more interesting concepts I've come across in a long time. And I agree that like the cool stuff is partly, you know, if something else is happening, it's like, Oh my gosh, this bug car is driving them through the middle of the earth and the earth. <laughs> oh my gosh, has a face and is sentient. 
whoa, <laughs> like, what <laughs> is happening? Um, and she does a good job with it overall. I mean, like the, the, the ideas there are really good. I mean, I still have some problem with the execution, but you're not wrong to say like the dope things are are vital to this kind of work. Um, but yeah, that's I think that's all I have, man. You got anything else? You want to give another shout out maybe to like what we're doing next time or do you have more yeah, dope I guess things? I... Sorry. No, that's all my dope things. I guess the only other thing I wanted to say is just I'll be very interested to see where this trilogy sits uh, in about 10 years, yeah. both in N.K. Jemison's own work, uh, because this is really only the third fantasy series she's written, and she turns out about a book a year. Uh, and so she's, I don't think she's done. She's still working on this. This TV show is theoretically happening with the, with the Broken Earth. But I'll be very curious to see where she goes from here as a writer and also where sort of these books sit in sort of the canon in a while. And that's not because I think they're underrated or overrated. I just honestly don't know how they're going to be perceived. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I'll be, I, I agree. Well, and especially because, um, because I think the book, first book is such a, such a standout, but also this is what I love about writing. I've said this before, you know, you only got to do it good once. <laughs> that's all. Yeah. Like you can, you can have, and I'm not saying she does at all, but like, this is the beauty of a lot of writers that we now remember like they wrote 60 books and one of them was great. And so they're celebrated forever, even though a lot of those other books are trash. Again, not saying hers are, but that's the beauty of like, she's already done it, you know? And so I agree with you that yeah. it's kind of now she's just playing with you know, house money, right? Like she gets to do whatever she wants. And uh, for fantasy writers, especially, I think sometimes that's when they go off the deep end, but a lot of times, you know, it's when they, they really, they really, yeah, they really decide they're going to, I don't know do something wholly different, which might be interesting. So yeah, I agree with you. And I hope the TV series is not bad, but I, I probably won't watch it. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, it's we don't even have a trailer yet. It's still, I mean, it might not even still happen yet, so I'm not going to think about it too much. But Fair enough. Uh, I'll be interested <laughs> to see how they choose to do it. Yeah. It'll have to make some pretty broad stylistic choices if it's going to be interesting. And in, weirdly, in order to be more like the book series, it's going to have to look less like the book series, which totally I think is kind of what you were saying yes. earlier. Yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, so uh, that's been the end of episode five. It's three episodes long, but we decided that was the proper nomenclature. So we're moving <laughs> on to our second book episode, major, a third episode, our, uh, our fifth episode of podcasts, but our third separate subject this year and like our ninth overall. I don't know. The episode numbers are clearly nonsense. Whatever. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. Um, we're going to move to our second big read of the year, which is uh, one book but it's three plays. And there's also another book, which is not the big read, but is still part of the project because, you know, why have a format if you don't deviate it from it wildly? <laughs> if, you don't, if you just ignore it after the first one for the rest of the books, basically. Our, 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 our second podcast was, what if we read a very small book in our podcast called The Big Readcast? So I think you knew what you were signing up for. <laughs> I really, well, it really was. I think in that, in that podcast you explained, you were like, I just wanted to talk to you about this. <laughs> yeah. And this is sort of our forum for like making our calendars mesh, right? Because we're both busy. <laughs> um, all right. So the, uh, the the book we're doing for the podcast is Tom Stoppard's The Coast of Utopia, which is actually a trilogy of plays that came out in the early 2000s. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And to, to some some acclaim, but not anything like I, I hadn't heard of them until Joel mentioned them. This is another one of those books where Joel said, we should read this. And I said, I don't know what that is, but sure. Uh, so... <laughs> Which has worked out really well so far, to be clear. I liked The Unconsoled. I really liked Black Lamb and Grey Falcon. I liked Worst Journey in the World, although I think we both came to that sort of independently. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. anyway, um, we're also going to read, however, because it's a trilogy of plays, which is about 
you know, Russian thinkers and all sort of the lead up to the revolution. Although I don't think it actually depicts anything in the revolution, but it's all sort of 19th century Russian yeah, I think thought. It's, yeah, it's the we're going to read a book setting. called, yeah, we're, we're going to read a book called Russian Thinkers by Isaiah Berlin, which is, I think, a collection of essays which got sort of cobbled together into a book, is my understanding. Uh, and we're reading that not as much as a text in and of itself, as much as a sort of through line and a guidebook to sort of what's going on as we're reading the set of plays, which is not to say that we're not going to talk about that book. It's just that the, the, the podcast episode is about the coast of Utopia, and we're reading this as like a yeah. helpful thing, because the coast of Utopia is only like 300 and something pages, although it's a play, so who knows what that means. Um, and one thing I would add is if anyone actually does read along, um, first of all, yeah, it's a play, so it's much faster to get through. It's three plays, obviously. Um, but I would say for the Russian thinkers one, um, I think you might be able to find like the introduction to the book somewhere online. Um, and I, I would recommend the introduction to the Isaiah Berlin's Russian thinkers. If you have any interest in sort of like, I don't know, kind of like philosophical light, sociology, sociology stuff, um, He's famous for like kind of one, if he's famous at all, he's famous for a few things. But one of the big ideas I've heard him be praised for is distilled perfectly in his introduction. So if you do read along with us, which I don't know who would do that, <laughs> but if you do, and I, you know, we hope you do, if, um, I think it's fun. The Russian Thinker's book, I definitely, the introduction's like 20 pages, maybe 15. It's worth reading as an introduction to Isaiah Berlin, if nothing else. Um, and I'd recommend it if you can find it online to do that. Um, but yeah, beyond that, we're just doing the plays and hopefully as many of the essays as we, as we can as as helpful guides. So I, I do have a story I got to tell real quick, and I'll probably say it again next episode because it's one of the funniest things that's ever happened oh, that's to me. Right. But uh, so the Isaiah Berlin has been collected in a Penguin Classics, you know, black binding thing, and that's what I have. But I wanted to buy a copy of The Coast of Utopia, and it was not impossible, but was harder. It clearly hasn't been printed as much. And so I had to go to third-party sellers on Amazon, and there were a bunch of them. And I bought what was supposed to be a, I think, a three-volume set, so like three slim volumes, for not very much money. And I got a package in the mail, uh, and it wasn't very big. And I said, I feel like a three-volume set should be bigger than this. And I opened it up, and instead of being Tom Stoppard's The Coast of Utopia, which is a trilogy of plays about Russia and philosophy, and I haven't read it yet, so I don't know what else, I got Story of O by Pauline Rayage, which is a pseudonym, so I don't care that I'm sure I said it incorrectly, which I didn't know what the heck was. And then I Googled it, and it is, in fact, 1950s French fetish porn. Uh, so... <laughs> Which is just uh, like, I, I, told, I, I, told, I told you the time, for anyone listening, I was like, we should definitely do this for our podcast. People could hear me blush and cringe <laughs> through the microphone. Well, so I, I you know, I, I Googled it, and it was like an erotic novel. And I was like, oh, okay. So it's a 50s, you know, book with like some sex in it. And then I flipped through some pages and I was like, oh, no, this is just <laughs> pornography, actually. Like, not terribly subtle. Like, not like 50s stuff where like somebody goes into a room and you're like, oh, my goodness. No, yeah. like actually just pornography. Okay, that's fine. I'm not going to read this. I don't know. Maybe I'll read it. I feel like I should, but sometimes I feel like I shouldn't. Oh we're not going to do gosh. it for the podcast. No, uh, but if you read it, <laughs> we're giving you a 20 minute segment where you're going to talk about it. <laughs> I don't know. I read the plot possible. synopsis and I was just like, good lord, and people were mad at Fifty Shades. Holy cow. <laughs> well, that's, yeah. All right. That's a different. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So be, caref be careful out there, people. Be careful with your booksellers. That's all we're saying. Yeah. And if, if the, I should say the bookseller was very nice about 
Uh, they gave me a refund immediately. There was no issue at all. I said, this isn't what I ordered. And they said, here's the refund. I got it two days later. But they also told me to donate unwanted books to charity. And I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, that would be a good great, the Salvation Army. That would be a great church yeah. basement find. <laughs> Put it in one of those, like, uh, corner library, you know, like, yes. take a book, leave a yes. book. Yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Some poor mom finds her son reading it. So, anyway, funny things happen when you order books online sometimes. <clears throat> That's the whole bit I have. That's the whole bit. Um, All right, man. Well, thanks for talking about this. Yeah, I really enjoyed doing this. And yeah, I, I still, you know, I continue to enjoy this project, and I'm glad we read these, and I'm excited to do something entirely different for the next one. We haven't decided what we're doing for book three. We think we've decided what we're doing for book four, but we're not going to tell you yet. Exactly. Um, because it's a secret. <laughs> and I'm trying to convince Joel into doing some small reads between now and there, but he's doing this thing where, like, there's going to be another child or whatever. It's I don't true. know. His priorities yeah. are all upside having, down. Having another baby, which is, like, I'm 20 less books a year. You know what I mean? I just I measure kids in the amount of books I don't read. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I keep track of it, so I'm gonna be able to tell them one day. Look, here's the graph of Daddy's reading. Do you see how it goes down until it just stops and Daddy dies? <laughs> um, I don't know why it got so dark. It's pretty late here at this point. <laughs> yeah, I think we're gonna call it here. But uh, yeah, we'll. Uh, so in about a month, we'll be doing the one in on the Stoppard. We're not gonna wait three months on that. There should be three months between the Stoppard and whatever we're doing after that. So you you should be able to catch up for our legion of people who are reading along with us. Um, but uh, yeah, Joel, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for thanks for thanks for doing it. You too, man. This is a great suggestion. Uh, we'll talk soon. Yeah, talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Final thanks to Lily Jarvis and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their song Water Song for our podcast. You can find both of them on SoundCloud if you'd like to hear more of their music. Please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or any other podcasting service, and, uh, you know, we'll see you next time.